0: Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier.
1: On today's episode, we're joined by a good friend of mine, a colleague from Ducks Unlimited Canada, and, and a repeat Performer here on the podcast, uh, Dr. Scott Stevens, Director of Regional Operations for the Prairies and Boreal. Uh, joining us all the way from Okamak Marsh, Manitoba. Scott, thanks for taking time to join us on the podcast. Yeah, happy to be here, Mike. Happy I got asked back after being on before. Well, we were talking before we started recording here. You were on an earlier episode, and that episode has the distinction of being the most downloaded podcast thus far to date. And so I don't want you to get too big of an ego as a result of that, but you know, the I do want to uh, use that as a way to apply a little bit of pressure to you to make sure we deliver the same type of performance this time around. Can we do that?
2: Right, yeah. Well, and I told my mom she should just keep downloading <laughs> it, and I'd let her know when to quit. So, I,
1: Well, I think it succeeded. So, uh, yeah, that previous, <laughs> that previous episode was like a, a migration update, so I thought it would be fitting if we could start out this episode the same way and just ask you, uh, why are you still keeping all the mallards up in Manitoba? We're here, in late January reports are that y'all still have them all up there.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I can report that it's nine degrees here this morning, which is actually quite a bit of a warm-up from, from where we've been, and I have not seen a duck since probably late October, so... Um, so although they could be north of you they are they are not here in Manitoba or anywhere across the Canadian prairie.
1: So let the facts show that when it gets cold enough ducks still migrate They do yep
2: they they don't hang out when there's snow and ice everywhere which is what we've got now
1: okay well we just need more of that it's actually we're, we're recording this here late January last uh, the, the final days of the duck season 2019 2020 so um it's been a hit or miss prop hit or miss proposition for a lot of folks but you know that's the way it goes i went out this past week uh in my my old stomping grounds of north mississippi and i i zeroed on the ducks but fortunately shifted to deer and actually uh put one of those on the ground so you uh, just kind of have to shift tactics sometimes
2: yep there you go
1: so uh, we wanted to have you on for a couple of reasons we now uh, this will be an opportunity to introduce our listeners to some of the uh, conservation programs that that are in place uh, in Canada and that are undertaken by, by DU Canada. Of course, we've referenced a couple of times how we have sort of three Ducks Unlimited organizations that operate as a family, Ducks Unlimited Incorporated here in the States, Ducks Unlimited Canada, obviously in Canada, and, and then Ducks Unlimited in Mexico, uh, also known as DUMAC down in, in Mexico. And so we want to, through time, bring folks some information on, on each of those organizations and the type of conservation programs that uh, and, and broader efforts that we're involved in in, in each of those countries and how we are targeting and trying to make a positive impact on the waterfowl habitats in, in each of those countries. And so this is a uh, an opportunity to introduce that for the uh, the prairies, at least. I'm not exactly sure how much other we'll, we'll cover on this, but I'm going to leave that a bit up to you. So Scott, I think to start out, let's just talk uh, big picture, introduce some of the some of the basics, some of the more traditional conservation programs that DU Canada has implemented um uh, in, in the prairies, uh, impacting some of the important nesting nesting grounds for waterfowl.
2: Yeah, and, and maybe just quickly before I do that, um, as as you were going through that intro, it it struck me that, uh, well, both you and I, Mike, were involved with sort of the recent revamp of our international conservation plan, which spans all three countries and was really focused on ensuring that we use the best most contemporary science to drive our investments in habitat work to benefit waterfowl populations and um you know the results of that sort of reinforce the fact that breeding areas are are right now the areas that are most limiting and that we see the the most uh most impact of our investments so you know we're going to talk about the prairies today but you know it's places like that that once again we're we're at the top of the list for where the most impactful investments could be made
1: yeah yeah that's a good point I, i don't think we've talked very much about that on any of our episodes uh the that type of planning you know we've we've uh, had some other guests on speaking big picture about the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, but but within Ducks Unlimited, we drill down even to uh, to further use the science to help us identify some of the priority landscapes. and uh, And what you said is exactly true, and that's why the the work that we do in the prairies, uh, in the breeding grounds, is uh, is so important.
2: Yeah. So so maybe I'll jump in and talk about programs, and and the context would be. Um, you know, when, when the birds are coming back here in another couple months from their wintering areas, um, you know, as the prairies are thawing out and those small shallow wetlands are, are thawing and beginning to bloom with uh, invertebrate activity, um, you know, they're looking for those food resources to take advantage of to, to sort of produce a clutch of eggs. And then for for all of the dabbling ducks, they're then going to think about selecting nest sites which happen to be in, in upland cover. So away from the wetland. Um, you know, many folks not familiar with ducks are amazed when we tell them that species like mallards and pintails could, could make their nest up to a mile from the nearest wetland. So, so those are the things that we think about. Um, really the resources that they need when they return here are the wetlands to provide the food resources for eggs and clutches of eggs and for ducklings to grow muscle and feathers and all those kinds of things so the wetlands provide that and then the the grasslands or or upland areas provide nesting habitat for them so that's what our programs are focused on keeping the wetlands in place or restoring wetlands and then maintaining grassland cover um so we have a bunch of different programs that do that uh when we think about where we have intact habitat, where the wetlands are in place and the the grasslands are in place, and we just want to keep those there, um, we have programs like perpetual conservation easements, which we have lots of demand from landowners for those right now, where we'll make a payment to the landowner and basically purchase the right to cultivate the uplands and to drain the wetlands. So. Ducks Unlimited Canada purchases that right. We hold the conservation easement. It's attached to the title of the land and, uh, you know, forever protects the wetlands and grassland in those areas. And, you know, over the recent time period across the Canadian prairies of Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba, we've been doing in the neighborhood of 25,000 acres of, of those per year. Um, so those are pretty impactful, uh, and, and provide benefits from, you know, from the time we do them forevermore, uh, for waterfowl that come back every year. So those are, those are sort of a key program that we're focused on.
1: I know when we look across the waterfowl conservation enterprise, you know, the things change whenever, whenever, uh, efforts were getting underway in the, the mid 20th century, a lot of our focus was on, on acquisition, acquiring the, the land, you know, the, the, what we identified as back then was sort of the same base at the basic level as what you just talked about. We want to keep the good habitats for waterfowl on the ground. We want to protect them from uh, from development or conversion or whatever the uh, whatever the case may be. Um, so we d- we did go through a, a period where we acquired properties at at some level, but but I think what we found out is that. That's just not a sustainable model. Uh, you just can't impact the uh, acreage at a large enough scale, uh, the habitats at a large enough scale to make a difference. So, what uh, do we do? Any additional, I should say, you, DU you, Canada, do, uh, does DU Canada do any additional acquisition at this point? What percentage of the overall portfolio of conservation programs would that make up?
2: Yeah, good question, and and you are right in the in the sort of mid to late eighties. That was a big focus of of our programs to keep uh, keep habitat that was intact in place. Was we'd just buy it and we'd hold it and we'd manage that property. So I think we have probably somewhere around two hundred seventy thousand acres of fee title land that we own across the Canadian Prairies, um, and those are important as as you mentioned. You know, they provide access, and we we know that that those areas are going to provide habitat for here evermore also. But we discovered exactly what you talked about is that's pretty costly, um, especially with the escalation of land prices that we've seen. And we just weren't going to be able to, to have the scale of footprint that we needed to have to really impact populations at the continental scale. If, if that was the only tool that we were going to use. So we shifted to, In the early 90s, there was enabling legislation for perpetual conservation easements. And essentially, at least across the Canadian prairies, the going rate for conservation easements would be in the neighborhood of 25 to 30 percent of the fair market value of the land. So you can just think about if you had a million dollars to spend, if you do purchases, You know, you'd get an acreage if you instead did conservation easements, you'd get about three times that acreage um, with the same investment. There were also a bunch of other things that that conservation easements are just more palatable to the agricultural community that we're working in um, in these landscapes also because when we purchase the land um and held it, we were viewed as competitors for that land. And when we're doing the conservation easements, now the land remains in private ownership, remains in agricultural production. And uh so that's more palatable. Um We have shifted to a model where we do still purchase some land, but it's more in the revolving land context where we'll purchase the land, we'll do any restorations that are necessary, and then we'll sell that land back into private ownership with a perpetual conservation easement attached that guarantees that the wetlands and grasslands remain intact, but in most cases that goes to the ranching community and they graze cattle on it, so it's still in production, still on the tax rolls, um, all of those things, um, but is... You know, still providing the conservation benefits, and the costs with the funding that we have is about a third of if we owned it fee title, so that's kind of the model on that front that we've that we've moved to for for those best of the best properties that we really want to guarantee that habitat remains now or mostly protected by conservation easements instead of fee title acquisition.
1: Scott, I want to go back to that two hundred and seventy thousand acre figure for just a moment because on the surface, that sounds like a lot. But it's useful sometimes to put that in the context of the of the larger landscape in which that um, – in which that occurs. So tell our listeners that just uh, – about the scale of the prairie pothole region there in Canada. What are we looking at uh, in terms of the vastness of that landscape?
2: Yeah. So about two-thirds of the whole region is on the Canadian side of the border, and I had – just looked at a stat the other day on on sort of grassland resources across that area and they would be north of 60 million acres so and then we would have all of the cropland areas across that geography thrown in there so the scale is big and um maybe one piece of context that i think is important i know anytime we have people visit here especially people who have spent their whole lives on wintering areas um what really is is sort of a, a light bulb moment for them is when we drive around in the spring and the birds are arriving back and they see the fact that on every wetland there is a pair of each species um, because the birds are territorial at this time of the year. You know, a pair of mallards will not tolerate another pair of mallards on the small wetland that they're on. They will drive them off because they're comp- competing for invertebrate food resources on there and they they try and defend that. So, you know, you think about it, on wintering areas, man, we could pack a lot of wintering ducks into 270,000 acres. But when you flip the context and it's spring and they're territorial, now you need to spread those birds out all across the landscape. And, uh, you know, so a high density of birds, we might have a 100 pairs of total ducks per square mile. Um, so 200 birds per square mile, that would be a high density during the breeding season compared to during non-breeding time periods when they really pack in and, and you can really put, you know, hundreds of thousands of ducks on, on a few thousand acres. Um, so that's an important context, but yes, the scale is very big. So we need to impact lots of, lots of acres, you know, millions of acres is what we need to impact to really impact populations.
0: You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.
1: I would encourage all of our listeners, anyone that cares about waterfowl, to someday somehow make a trip to the Prairie Pothole Region, uh, because it it truly is a, a fascinating landscape. It's incredibly vast. It's one of those areas that you just can't appreciate unless you're uh, unless you're there, and it's really difficult to appreciate the size of it also just by being on the ground. I, I think uh, Google Earth and all the aerial imagery that is available now. Can in some way provide a bit of context because you can relate the size of the of that region to uh, to a, a state in the in the U.S. that you're familiar with, and you do get some sense of just truly how vast it is, uh, and uh, and the challenges that that brings with respect to the conservation programs that uh, that Ducks Unlimited is trying to. Uh, trying to implement so let's talk a bit more uh, in, in a bit more detail about the revolving land program so we've got a couple of different ways that we can put easements on on important habitats and revolving lands program is one of those so uh just share with us a bit more about that
2: yeah so so the basics of it are you know really the way this works is we have a bunch of field staff who you know they work to go out there in our in our target landscapes where we've identified the habitat being the most critical to waterfowl populations. So they go out and they visit with landowners across those landscapes and talk about the programs that we have available. So really, when they show up at the doorstep, they're kind of talking about the full menu of options that we have and then they sort of hone in when they figure out what the landowners are interested in. So in some cases, you know, they're interested in easements and they want to hold on to their land and and those work great. There are the whole host of other options that we'll talk about too. But in some cases, when they're having that conversation, the landowner says, well, you know, I've got this quarter section of land or, you know, a couple quarters that I'm just looking to sell. So, you know, I'm I'm not interested in an easement, but if you guys were interested in purchasing it from me, I would be interested in selling it. And in those cases, that's where we use revolving land now, where we'd we'd negotiate a price and, you know, we're required by our board to get appraisals of the fair market value of the land. And then we negotiate an appropriate price with the landowner. Um, And then once we own it, we'll do any restorations that are necessary and, and that can take, that can take a year or two. So we may hold on to the land for a year or two while we restore wetlands, restore any upland areas that were in cropland, restore those to grassland and make sure that the grassland stand is established well. And then when we get to the end of the process, we put those up on the market. We usually list them with, uh, with a real estate, a local real estate person who does the ag land in the area. And they're sort of available for purchase by anyone who's interested. And typically, it's uh, it's a rancher or somebody who's looking to cut hay who will purchase the land. They have to live by the the constraints of the conservation easement that that is attached to the land and will be there in perpetuity, which says they can't drain the wetlands and they can't they can't uh cultivate the uplands for cropland um, and then the transaction happens one of the um one of the nuances this this sort of way of purchasing land was really pioneered in in the U.S. prairies, in, in the Great Plains office of uh, North and South Dakota, back in probably the the early 2000s, they started doing this. And the way they did it there was they were able to, to build up a pool of funds, uh, a capital fund to purchase the land, and then they would purchase it um resell the property and typically on on the resale with the conservation easement there was a bit of a drop in the in the value so there's a bit of a loss but then there's a a payment that we can get for the easement that really usually sort of makes the transaction whole and then the money went back into that pot here in Canada we were in a little bit different situation in in that we didn't have we didn't have a big capital fund to take advantage of to do those purchases so we actually borrow the money from a financial institution interest rates are pretty attractive right now i think i think we pay about 3.4% interest while we are holding those lands um so we borrow that money we do the purchase Um, we do the restorations. When we turn around and sell it, the proceeds and payments for the easement that we get back go into the, to pay off that line of credit. And then we look for the next chunk. So, you know, the idea of borrowing money to, to do conservation is, is something that was new for us, and but has worked pretty well. We've also been successful in being able to find um, donors who are interested in helping us expand that conservation footprint, and they've been willing to pay for those interest costs for us to be able to, to borrow that money. So it's worked pretty well, and it does give us access to a pool of landowners out there in some of our important landscapes who... May not be interested in other programs that we have, but are just looking to sell their land and
1: uh, and move on to something else. And Scott, have you have you had good success turning around those properties? Have you or has it taken longer on some pieces of property to resell them once you've once you've done the restoration work than what you would have uh, anticipated?
2: No, I'd say it's it's worked pretty well. Um, You know, we, when we started out, we thought that we would need to hold most of the properties for a couple years just to get the wetlands restored and the, and the grassland restored. I would say on, on average, our track record is, is about that. Um, and the uptake for purchase of those lands once we have them restored has been pretty good. So, you know, we, we probably do, we probably purchase and resell five or six thousand acres per year now. Um, it's a little bit higher in some years, a little bit lower in others, but, um, there's, there's good demand for the properties that, that we're selling still. Um, really popular with, with the ranching community. In fact, um, just the whole concept of that has, has actually taken off where now we have individual ranchers who, who now understand how that system works and they're using their own capital to go buy land that helps them expand their operation. Then they come to us and we just pay them for the conservation easement. They use that payment to go back into their capital pool and they may buy another chunk. So we're, we're thrilled with that, that other people have, have sort of jumped on the idea and are taking advantage of it. And, you know, it just means more, more land that has benefits to waterfowl out there that are protected by conservation easements. And, um, you know, if somebody else can do it with their capital, all the
1: better. Yeah. We talk a lot about the importance of developing programs. We, within our community, talk a lot about the importance of developing programs that are not only good for waterfowl, but that are attractive to the landowners that, uh, that, that, that own the land on those habitats. Uh, and you know, you've, you know you have that type of program when the landowners are coming to you. Uh, and that's always a great metric for determining if you've got it right. You know, you've, we, we know what we need to do for the ducks. We're still learning what we need to do to align our programs with the needs and interest of people. But but when people come to us, when we have a a backlog of interest for certain programs, then we know we at least for some segment of that, uh, of that landowner base, we're doing the right thing with the, with the type of program that's mutually beneficial. And that's ultimately where we want to go. Yeah, that's right. Scott, we've you've talked about restoration in the context of uh, of these the revolving land program, uh, where we acquire the property and then you do the restoration and then we turn around and sell it. Are there any other restoration efforts that occur, um, just sort of separate from the revolving lands program? that We think about re- there are a lot of wetland restoration programs stateside, a lot of them on uh, non-breeding non-breeding grounds, uh, the wintering and migration grounds. There's some in the, in the breeding grounds also, but uh, are there any of those sort of isolated restoration programs that y'all are are, are doing in Canada? Yeah,
2: absolutely. In, in addition to keeping existing habitat in place, there are also situations that we'll find across many of our target landscapes where you know wetlands have been drained and and much of the Uplands are in cropland, so we know that there are more benefits if we can restore those wetlands and restore grassland to those areas. So we have programs that that target both of those things so on the upland side one of the one of the dominant programs that we have is called forage conversion, which basically it means that landowners come to us who are currently have some of their land in cropland and they're interested in restoring that to a forage like alfalfa that they can use to cut for hay or graze their cows on. Um, and, and we currently have relationships with some seed companies across Canada, which they provide some funding for this, we provide some funding. And essentially we can help offset uh, a big chunk of the costs of reseeding those, those properties to grassland and establishing that, that forage base. And then the landowner as, as part of getting that incentive and the, the reduced costs on, on the seeding, they agree to sign a 10 year agreement that says they'll keep it in that forage during that time period. So that's pretty popular. Um, in recent years, we've done up to 30,000 acres per year. And so there's good demand for that. Um, it suggests there's a strong, you know, cattle industry and demand for forage so that's positive and so we continue to do that so so that's one of the primary programs for restoration of the uplands on the wetland side we do have different programs across the three prairie provinces in in many cases there are um in in like Alberta and Manitoba, there are existing wetland regulations that protect wetlands, and if they're impact on wetlands, they require mitigation to be done. Or, you know, if you were going to impact three acres of wetland, you might have to pay for the restoration of, say, nine acres of wetland within that watershed or nearby. Um, we're actually one of the service providers who do those restorations as part of the mitigation process. And so... In Alberta, for example, um, in this current year, we'll restore right around a 1,000 acres of small wetlands uh, back to functioning wetlands that were previously drained. And across the other prairie provinces, we'll we'll restore wetlands um, wherever we get those opportunities. And we have incentive payments to encourage landowners to do that. Um, and, you know, we find opportunity to do that. I, w- I would say it's it's more challenging to do the wetland restoration than it is the the grassland restoration just because especially once the wetlands have been drained there's there's not a lot of momentum to put those back so it so it takes some financial incentives for us to get that done but but we do restore both grasslands and wetlands as part of our program too
1: Scott I appreciate all that information we've I think big picture we could describe the um, the efforts that you've described so far, whether it be protection through acquisition or easements, as well as restoration as our traditional direct programs where we're doing some kind of work on the land. Uh, but there's a host of additional programs and initiatives that uh, that DU Canada, uh, in, in this case, is uh, is involved in. I know we want to talk about those. And so we'll wrap up on this episode and we'll um, we'll start another episode where we get into some of the maybe newer um, conservation programs, conservation efforts that DU Canada is involved in. Does that sound like a plan? Yep, that sounds good, Mike. Okay. Thanks, Scott, for joining us. We will pick up here on the next episode. Special thanks to our guest on today's show. Good friend of mine, Dr. Scott Stevens of Ducks Unlimited Canada, the Director of Regional Operations for the Prairies and Boreal. Uh, we appreciate him joining us and joining us sharing some insights from what's going on north of the border. We also thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the wonderful job that he does with the podcast. And as always, we thank you, the listener, for joining us and sharing your time on this podcast and for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.